everyone, and welcome to season two of the award-winning podcast, The Politics of Disability. My name is Mary Fasek. I am your host and founder of the Disability Justice Movement, Upgrade Accessibility. We're still navigating a bumpy road, but there are lots of problems along the way. You want to make sure you buckle up really tight. All set? Here we go. Hello, and thank you so much for joining me today for this very special series. Would you please introduce yourself to the audience? Hello, my name is Allison Mariella Desir. She, her pronouns. I'm now based in Seattle, Duwamish lands. I am a mother, I'm an author, I'm a community builder, and I'm a disruptor. And we love those. We love disruptors <laughs> because that's what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed yes. to disrupt all of this chaos and make more chaos, but better chaos. <laughs> yes. Right? Tell us about your book and what prompted you to write your book. The name of my book is Running While Black. And the initial inspiration for writing the book actually came after the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. And his murder was in February of 2020. My son had been born in July of 2019. And I was still very much recovering from pregnancy and going through postpartum depression and anxiety. And the murder of Ahmaud hit me in a different way, right? For Generations, Black people have been killed for doing ordinary things, but to have a Black boy who could be my son now be murdered while doing the thing that I love, running, just hit so close to home. And I was terrified that I decided to bring a Black boy into this world knowing that the world could kill him. But I also felt this strong need to try to do something about it. So initially I wrote an op-ed that went viral and, you know, Black and other marginalized folks were thanking me for finally putting this into words. And so many white people were surprised. So many white people had never considered the experience of running from a Black person's perspective. And I said to myself, okay, I have to write this book. I have to write this book to affirm Black people's experiences and more generally speaking, marginalized people's experiences. And also so that white people can have some understanding that there are other people in this world and that they, white people, have a role in making the world safe for all of us, right? Not just themselves. So it's been a really beautiful process getting the book out. And for the most part, people have received it well. You know, there are white people and other people with privilege who are always upset (laughs) when you start telling the truth. And there are those people out there, but I've been encouraged by the reception. As you may know, I live in Brunswick, where Amar was murdered. My roommate worked with Amar's mother Mm. at the time of his murder. So this is very, very close to home. And what I know, did you have by any pushback, were there any misconceptions mm. about the title of your book? Mm. Because I could see like a white audience thinking that you're talking about like 
blackmail money from the police or oh. something like that. Like, I can just envision, mm-hmm. like, people with privilege assuming the worst about your title. Mm-hmm. Do you mm-hmm. come across any of that? Yes. And, you know, in particular, which is something a little different that I came across was that white people didn't understand the concept like running while black. What do you mean? It's just running. Right. Like there's no running while white. There's no running while this. And I said, well, actually, you know, when your experience has become the norm and has been seen and accepted as universal, then, yeah, you're just running. But anybody else doing something is doing it while black, doing it while disabled, doing it while trans. Right. And that's something that white people have have really been coddled into this experience of thinking, well, my experience is normal. And anything that deviates from that is either untrue or not my problem. So I got a lot of questions around that, like, what does that mean? And my response was always, well, read the book. <laughs> right. I mean, honestly, this should be the book that can amazing, but like, mm-hmm. read the book. And I think about there was a young man who lived in my apartment complex, and he would go for a jog every morning. Mm-hmm. And I thought about him. I'm thinking, like, I hope people in this neighborhood don't get the wrong idea. Mm-hmm. Like, he is honestly just exercising Mm. he is going for a job Mm -hmm. but you and i both know that when privileged people see a black young man or a black boy running they automatically assume the worst they're running from something they've done something criminal and this is the thing right I wrote this book in part, I wanted to share the struggle, but I I also wanted to share the joy. And that's what makes this so complex, right? I love running. Running has saved my life. It has allowed me to improve my mental health, but it also comes with this additional weight that I have to be concerned with how other people see me when I'm running. So I can't just have that joyful experience. I have to be concerned with what does this look like to other people? Should I smile and try to seem really quote unquote safe, or should I just try to keep my head down and be invisible? And that's, that's really the tug there between being hyper visible because you're often the only, or there's extra attention to you or be invisible. Just try to slide under the radar, make no trouble so that nobody does anything to you. And I think like always having to be on guard, like you mm-hmm. said, it takes the joy out of what you're doing. Exactly. And I don't think privileged people understand that. Like you mm-hmm. said, for you, it's not just running because if you start running, somebody like you said is going to make the assumption that you're running. From something, what did you do? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. if we see a white woman running, like, oh, look at her. She's getting the same group for her. <laughs> yes, exactly. You do a lot of social justice work. Whether that was your intention or mm-hmm. not, there's a lot of social justice work that went into your book that goes mm-hmm. into what you do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And I do disability justice work. Mm-hmm. But our work doesn't always intersect as it should. 
Yeah. Why do you think social justice excludes disability justice? This is something I've been talking about for, for years now. Like, mm-hmm. Why is it when we say Black Lives Matter, we are not saying Black disabled lives matter? Mm-hmm. Why is it when we talk about mass incarceration of Black men, we don't mention yeah, it is mostly black disabled men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet black disabled men face more violence from police than their non-disabled black counterparts. Mm-hmm. Why are we losing that? Yeah, you know, I mean, the only answer there is, and it's the honest answer, is that, you know, this country and this world more generally wishes disabled people didn't exist. Right. That is just a truth that we have to confront. And it's because of white supremacy. It's because of capitalism. It's because of a society rooted in this question of how productive can you be? What can you give? Like, how can society take from you? Right. Therefore, if you don't fit this standard of being, you know, quote unquote productive, then you're not useful. Right. And I'm saying this in really harsh terms, because I do believe that that is the underlying belief. So what does that mean? That we start to see people with disabilities as disposable. And at least in my experience, there's an intersection a lot in terms of people who are houseless and also disabled, right? Houseless and suffering from severe and persistent mental illness. And there's this, those people become invisible, Right. Again, despite being hyper visible. Right. It's not that we don't see them when we walk down the street, but we'd rather not see them. (laughs) And therefore, our efforts are not put towards the kind of care and housing. What we do, it's like the police. It's a one stop shop. The police go out and they assert their authority and they keep, um, you know, they keep, quote unquote, productive people safe and have no no concern for disabled people. That being said, intersectionality and interconnectedness is really what we all, well, collective liberation, right? Which is something that you always talk about. And and this is something that I've heard several thinkers say, but when you actually focus on the plight of the most marginalized people, everybody benefits, right? So if you are creating a world that centers the experience of disabled, um, Black, trans, et cetera, right? Folks who have the least amount of power in this world, then all of us will have better access to health, to education, to safer streets, right? But we don't have that collective mentality. We have a winner takes all. Um, I'm going to focus on my issue and not see how we're all connected. And that's my frustration is seeing those who do social justice work, racial justice work, gender justice work. Like, they talk about collective liberation, but that collective liberation does not include the disabled and concrete community. I'm like, that is not collective, Collective means everyone. Why are we excluding like you said, the most marginalized, when that is who we should be centering. And, and, you know, I want to say, I want to say that this is work that I have to do on myself too, right? And I think 
And I talk about this in the book in terms of white supremacy is not the shark, it's the water. So white supremacy is not this like big boogeyman that we can all see. And we're like, oh my God, there it is. Let's like shut it down. It's something that we all consume all the time. So what that means is that I am, I am as a person with who's able-bodied, I am often in situations that I'm not thinking, oh, the reason why there's a wheelchair access here. So somebody with a mobility issue can't be here, right? I am not thinking that always because it's not my experience. And the world also perpetuates this idea that folks like that don't matter, right? So all that to say is that um, when we're doing this work, we have to be actively uh, thinking about this. It's like there's a difference between being non-racist and being anti-racist, right? Being anti-racist means that you're actively pushing against systems that would rather have you forget. So um, that's not that's in no way trying to uh, let people off the hook. It's just a reminder that this work is work. And I think there's a misconception about access, right? Because so many people think access means just a ramp or an accessible parking space or an accessible bathroom. And access needs are far and wide and are very nuanced. And everyone has different access needs. Even if you identify as non-disabled, you probably still have an access need, exactly. whether, whether you realize it or not. Exactly. Everyone, and I said this in my big book that I am writing currently. You're writing a book? I am writing a book. Um, oh! Yes. In my big book, I wrote, everyone has access needs. Mm-hmm. Tied back to collective liberation, right? Mm-hmm. If we understood that everyone has access needs, then those access needs would be met. Mm-hmm. We've just normalized the ones that able-bodied folks need more, right? And this is like, okay, this is a really silly example, but right now I have Invisalign. And I have to brush my teeth after every time I eat and I have to take them out. And I started to think about how I feel this sense of like embarrassment over having to remove my Invisalign and this embarrassment of going to the bathroom. And that's the thing, like any deviation from what's supposed to be seen as the norm makes you start to feel like there's something wrong with you. (laughs) And it's not. It's just that I have this different need at this time. Again, a very simple example. But I think that it's in moments like that when you can really start to reflect on bigger issues and understand what must it be like when you have an essential need that you're made to be and feel embarrassed about that it can't be met, right? Like that's a lifetime of feeling unworthy. Like you don't matter when it's just, again, the world and the structures that have not shifted to center you. So the example I can give you is last week and we are recording this in January of 2023, for everyone who is listening or reading the transcript, last week, Maury Matlin walked out of the Sundance Film Festival because mm. he was on the a judging panel. Maury Matlin is a deck actress 
and Sundance Film Festival refused to provide captions for oh. her. Wow. Yes. But now this is a big deal, but here's my thing. It's a big deal because Mari Matlin is a well-known actress. Mm. What happens to people who are hard of hearing or deaf who ask for captions, who ask people to caption their content, they get pushed back. But now Mari Matlin is a hero because her stance was you cannot provide captions, I'm walking out, and mm. everyone is saying good for her. Mm. Just like the Britney Spears conservatorship. Mm. Everyone talk about free Britney. No one talk about the hundreds of thousands of disabled people who have been forced into conservatorships for mm. years and years and years. No one even knew what a conservatorship was uh-huh. until they heard about Britney Spears. Again, this goes back to these needs. And this, all of this has existed before a celebrity talked mm. about them or it mm. was about a celebrity. Mm. But yet, this is what we pay attention to. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, I hadn't even heard about that instance with the closed captions, but to your point that some of these issues only get addressed when there's a population that has more privilege <laughs> that needs it. Right. You know, and I, and I, I think about that in terms of recognizing, you know, now I have when my son was really little and I was looking through Instagram and I couldn't listen to anything and people, and I started to get upset, like, well, why aren't there closed captions? Right. But it's again, my level of visibility on it was only in this particular circumstance. And that's why we always need to listen to disabled folks, right? We need to listen to the most marginalized because again, not only do we all benefit, which is, but also we then allow a huge segment of the population to to live fuller lives. And I want to say both of these instances were white women. Britney mm. Spears or a white woman. Marley Matlin is a oh, white yeah. woman. You're mm-hmm. talking about white women surrounding the disability issue. We're not talking about multi-marginalized. Well, they are mm. multi-marginalized. We are women disabled, but they're not the most marginalized mm-hmm. of a group. You know, mm-hmm. and it's just astounding to me that it takes something like that for these issues to be spoken about. And going back to access needs, you're a mom, and if there are any other mothers or fathers or parents listening, if you've ever had to have the door open for you because you were pushing a stroller, that's an access need. Mm-hmm. Everyone has access needs. Oh, no, we aren't done yet. Come back before two to find out where we go. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Politics of Disability podcast. I can never get your journey. Remember, disability is political. Disability is messy. Disability is not powerful, nor does it have to be.